0: Um, even more niche courses like 13 Week Cash Flow, Venture Capital Course, Real Estate Modeling—you name it. Go ahead and check them out at WallStreetOasis.com/courses. Thanks for the support.
1: Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Kyle Westra, a strategy consultant focused on pricing. Kyle and I talk all about getting into consulting after business school, what he actually does on the job, and about a book he just wrote. Really interesting. Also, a framework for how he wrote the book. One of the main things I took away from the conversation with Kyle is how important it is to be where you want to work. You want to work on Wall Street? Got to be in New York. And you can hustle your way in. Want to raise money for your startup? Then go to San Francisco. My partner, Jason, he'll go up to SF and spend a couple weeks in a row there doing meetings. But it's nowhere near the same as being there for a few months in a row. What happens then is you become part of the ecosystem. And serendipity can take hold, where you meet and engage with people that you never even would know about. This key to life, it goes beyond where you live. It's pretty much about acting the part. You need to convince others that you've de risked yourself so that they can hire you, invest in you, become your friend, whatever. It's kind of what professional life is all about convincing others to hire you or bet on you. And yeah, being around the hoop certainly helps. Getting social proof by going to recognizable schools or companies or having connections within your network to people you want to know, that's all crucial. If you don't have any of those things, though, then you need to pretend that you do. Living in the place you want to be and starting to get coffee with people, you know, you want to know, that's a start, and it'll expand from there. Before you know it, you'll start to have meaningful connections, you'll be attending the right get-togethers, and the whole thing will come full circle as your network expands. So I guess the real takeaway here is just go do it. Don't make excuses for why you can't. Okay, let's get into the interview. Kyle Westra, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Alex. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah, yeah. You and I talked for a long time on the phone, a long time ago. So I'm racking my brain of a good thing I have notes. always take notes. But you've had an interesting career, as you say, windy, upside down, inside out, this way, that way, career. And uh, you've also, you're an author now. You've got a really interesting, really cool book that I want to talk all sorts about. So before we get into the book and what you're doing now, like let's Talk about how you got your start. You know, where'd you go to college? What'd you do after college? All that sort of stuff.
0: Sure. Yeah, I can I can give you kind of the the quick version, and, and feel free to ask to dive in anywhere. But I went to Tufts University, just outside of Boston. Wasn't really sure what I wanted to study when I got there, but ended up doing political science and economics, which are two pretty big areas for the school. I'm a musician, so I did quite a lot of music too, but decided not to focus on that for degree purposes. And I had the, uh, the great fortune of, of graduating just as the Great Recession was starting in 2008. So I had taken some pretty quantitative economics classes and econometrics, statistics, thought I might be able to get a job in that. That didn't exactly turn out. So I ended up actually spending two months in China with a friend and then when I was back in the, in the U.S., moved down to D.C., uh, was able to get an uh, internship with a well-known nonpartisan think tank, in a foreign policy think tank down there called CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and was, was able to, to grow there for a few years. I was focusing on analyzing global trends, supporting different uh, experts there, organizing events Working with a leadership academy there, too, that helped to train foreign diplomats, military leaders, corporate executives, and the like. After a few years, I ended up moving to Chicago following my girlfriend at the time. She was going there for med school, and I was was getting a little itchy, too, wondering what was next. Uh, and wasn't sure that public policy was the be-all and end-all for me. I wasn't tied to D.C., wasn't tied to the political arena. So in Chicago, I decided to flex the economic side of things a, a bit more and uh, got involved in a, a couple of different internet companies in marketing and in operations roles. Worked for Groupon for just under a couple of years. That was right before they went public, I think. I think I went public a week after I joined. So that was a, a really fascinating time to be there. Lots of ups, lots of downs. After after a few years, I ended up getting an uh, MBA at DePaul University. And uh, that's where I fell into my current role, which is working for a boutique pricing strategy consultancy, which is based in Chicago. And so we focus on pricing strategy and marketing strategy for medium to large companies quite a lot in medical devices, life science, manufacturing, industrial, software and technology as well. So I have my hands in in Excel, I have my hands in organizational design. Pricing involves a lot of psychology and and management decisions too. So it's it's kind of a nice grab bag of of a lot of things I was interested in and, and some things I had the opportunity to to work in beforehand.
1: Pretty cool Kyle. And uh, I'm gonna guess that that little package that you just delivered to us That's what you got at DePaul. You know, they gave you like, here, here's your one minute pitch. Here's how you do it. Because that was really, really smooth what you just gave us. But I guess if I'm going to key in on something, let's start at the beginning there, is like graduating in the crisis. That's when I did 209, pretty abysmal Mm -hmm. time to, uh, to be looking for jobs, right? Like I tell people, I thought I was going to be working at Starbucks, you know, lucky, (laughs) lucky enough, you know, we like you hustle and you send hundreds and hundreds of resumes and you know, you're able to get something, but for you, it was an internship. So what was that like getting you know, an internship after you graduate? And then how'd you turn that into a, into a real permanent job?
0: Sure. I Frankly, even getting the internship was not easy. Not yeah. to pat myself on the back, but just to say for people who weren't in the job force at that time or, or weren't starting their career at that time, most companies weren't even offering things like that. And, and for someone like me who was focusing on the, the nonprofit space those companies were even more cash strapped than than others. I applied to a lot of things remotely the fall after I graduated. I, I grew up in Maine, so I was back home for a little bit. Girlfriend was still in Boston, so bouncing back and forth between those and applying mostly to things in DC. But I learned pretty quickly and, and got some good advice in this direction as well that if I wanted to make progress, I really had to be on the ground in DC. And that was, that was really fantastic advice. Um, I made... So much more progress after one week of living there than I had in the previous three or four months. The nature of those types of internships, at least, and, and probably internships in general, is they're looking for someone who can start right away. They don't want to be talking to someone who maybe can move to the city in question within the next couple months and figure out housing and and all that sort of stuff. So I was I was fortunate to have people to stay with while I was in D.C and get some informational interviews via people I knew from college and uh, make some progress in that way. So
1: many people have come on the podcast and they've pretty much given the exact same, I don't even know if you, if you know it was advice what you just said, but they've pretty much given that exact same line of like, you want to have a tech startup, you have to be in San Francisco. You want to mm-hmm. work on Wall Street, you have to be in New York. And you're saying you want to be in politics, you have to be in DC, and they're like, you know, I was living in Toronto. I was sending emails, and I was having calls here and there. But then I got there, and then like, oh man, I bumped into someone from Google, and then I became their roommate, and they be, they invested in mm-hmm. my startup. And it's like, yeah, now I've just you know started some crazy company. So it's like, right. I can't tell you how many people have just said, just go there. And the opportunity
0: that- for for serendipity, like like you mentioned, are just increased so much once you're actually on the ground, and even meeting people informally, meeting people personally, the number of people you run into who oh have they have a friend or they have an uncle or they looked at this company or or something like that. Those aren't interactions that you can really have remotely, at least not nearly to the same quality. And as I learned later on too, as I stuck with, with CSIS and was able to join as a research assistant and then a program manager, and then was involved in hiring my own interns and very quickly appreciated the the difficulties that come with that role too you're you're given a stack of resumes a, a stack of applications, and frankly, you need to rely on some heuristics to begin to winnow that group down and One of the easiest is does this person live here already? People who are available right away just they're going to have such a leg up now it's it's scary because it's a commitment right and Oftentimes it's a substantial financial investment to to pick up and move and, and start paying rent often and, and all of that. It's a strong degree of uncertainty, but it's a it's a investment that that uh in my experience really, really has to be done. It's necessary.
1: Yep. Sorry, I kind of jumped in there with that. But it also gets to the fact that like it seems like yeah, on your journey, it's gone this way and that way, but it, like I would just from a couple of 10 minutes into this podcast, it seems like everything you do is is pretty calculated and uh, and measured. Is that kind of how you see yourself?
0: I think it appears that way in hindsight, but at the time it, it certainly wasn't. Sure. Um It's pretty easy to to draw a straight line or something that appears like to be a straight line after the fact. But for most of my career, I've been pretty uncertain of what the next steps are. Am I doing what I should be doing? Am I doing what I'm best at? Am I in something that I can grow in? Those are questions I've been constantly asking myself, and and oftentimes the the answers didn't feel like yes. And the fact that I that I didn't have yeses there helped to spur me on to looking for something else. I mentioned being at Groupon, and it was a fantastic learning experience. But at least for the role I was in, the type of things I was doing, the time I was there, there wasn't much room for for upward growth for me. So I was in between going back to school for public policy, you know, taking, taking a step back toward what I had been doing in, in DC. There's not much of that in Chicago, but there, there is still some. There are some great organizations in the city that could have been relevant. There were questions of that. There were questions of uh, business school or, or just looking, trying to get a, a different job at a, at a different company in order to level up that way. And this is all in addition to you know, trying to network a lot within Groupon, trying to get my hands on Meteor Projects, all sorts of stuff that that didn't really go anywhere. I suppose one calculated thing that I did do is is uh while still in DC, I I was pretty sure that graduate school was something I I might need to or or want to or or both in the future. So I kind of looked up which programs take the GRE, which take the GMAT and saw that the GMAT was probably even if I didn't want to go to business school, it was it was taken at more kind of liberal arts style programs than vice versa. The GRE, at least at the time, wasn't wasn't taken for business schools. And the scores were good for five years. And there I was in kind of early 20s and thought, well, odds are good that if this is a move I make, it will be within the next five years. I uh, might as well get this out of the way during a relatively uh, easier period of time. So in terms of applying to business schools, it was super helpful that I already had that in my pocket, kind of that, uh, that hurdle out of the way.
1: Yeah. Because that's not how I did it. You know, the business school application process, you need to, like, put this whole package together and write essays and take the GMAT. And, like, for me, it was all coming down to the very last minute on, like, applying, like, you know, on the second and third deadlines of these schools, not even the first deadline. But, you know, I was in a similar position to you. I'm working at a job. I'm like, okay, I don't know that there's a ton upward here for me. I don't know if I'm if I'm even learning that much. <laughs> Looking back on it now, it looks like I learned a fair amount, but when I was there, I was like, oh, this you know, is not, not enough. I need more. And so I'm like you, trying to get more responsibility at the job, trying to interview for, for other jobs, and then putting all the business school stuff together. And it was like, okay, well, I don't love this job I'm in. I'm not getting any of these jobs I'm applying for. So just like it's business school by uh, by default.
0: Right, and i was I was fortunate to be able to get a graduate assistantship um, at DePaul, which, which helped to pay for the majority, almost all of the degree. so the fact that my girlfriend at the time was um, was in school and I was going to step back to, to be in school too, that made that more financially viable. We were already thinking as a unit, and uh, depaul had a had a one and a half year mostly full-time accelerated program. Uh, it was cohort-based too, which was appealing to me. So I'd be with more or less the same 30 to, to 40 people in quite a lot of my classes. And the fact that I could do it in the end of my program would align with the end of my girlfriend's school as well was was highly appealing too. So both the, the timing, the relative low financial commitment, and um, to the point of you saying you've learned a lot from previous experiences, even if it didn't feel so at the time, one of the big handicaps that I felt was that the majority of my experience was at a, was at a non-profit think tank. And, and frankly, I don't think hiring managers knew what to do with that. You know, In hindsight, it's it's uh, easier to say, oh, I, I learned a lot of management skills, honed uh, analytical skills, became better at writing, better at public speaking. But it was so removed from the types of uh, marketing or strategy business jobs I was trying to get that... I really felt like having some sort of business degree would be especially helpful for me, coming from a non-business background, to help to demonstrate in an objective way: here is what I know, here is what I've done, these are the commitments I've made, and this is what I can can do for your organization.
1: Right, that all makes sense, and the and you know the whole. Program, getting, you know, having a, a job during it and coinciding with your, uh, with your girlfriend's timing. Mean, yeah. Like getting back to the calculated thing, that seems pretty, like a pretty neat little package that you're putting together now.
0: Yeah. I suppose so in, in, in that way. I, uh, again, I was fortunate that there were even opportunities that, that aligned yeah. in that way. But yeah. Uh, where I was at the time, I, I wasn't on such a straight career path or anything where I knew I wanted to be in this industry doing this type of role. I was much more comfortable, you know, putting as my priority aligning my time with my girlfriend. We had done long distance before we were in it for the long haul. We didn't want to do long distance again. And we, by that time, were pretty sure that we weren't going to stay in in Chicago after, after the four years. So even if it hadn't been the ideal program for me, which I, th- I think in many ways it was the fact that from a personal point of view, it was, was ideal, carried a lot of weight for me.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, that. uh, I like it. So tell me, like, what did you learn about yourself in business school? Like, did it help you put all the pieces together? And did you come out and get this your dream job? And now, like, you live in a in a great house, and your life is set. And like, how'd
0: it go? It wasn't quite that straightforward, but it, uh, it did feel like pretty quickly the right decision. The way the program was organized, we took a good amount of fundamental, foundational business classes which which probably didn't appeal to many people but who had done business in undergrad or something like that but but for me it was actually useful to and frankly one of the purposes I saw in an MBA of getting a broad business education and having to learn about corporate accounting and kind of marketing 101 and in operations supply chain all all of that stuff and for someone too who wasn't sure that what they wanted to go into what field they wanted to go into or, or what functional role getting a taste of all those things was was especially useful. The cohort program, like I mentioned, was was really nice for finding a group of people that I clicked with well, that were interested in some of the same things. And most of the people I would say that I clicked with the most were kind of in the same the same position as me by that point. Let's see, mid twenties, career switcher or or pivoter, people who had several years of work experience, um, you know, under their belt already, and. I think had more of a more of a purpose, more of a strategy of going back to school, rather than that just being the the default decision. Oh, I I don't know what I want to do, just coming out of undergrad. So I guess I'll I guess I'll keep going to school. The classes that I ended up gravitating toward were pretty heavy in in strategy and marketing analytics. There was one professor in particular that I had heard great things about. I made sure to take all of his classes. So in that way, kind of kind of choosing the professor over the subject. Which was another piece of advice I had gotten to really going for engaging, thoughtful, dedicated professors, almost regardless of, of what they taught. And it was a happy coincidence that the classes that this professor taught were more or less what I, what I wanted to take anyway. One nice thing about DePaul, too, is they, they use a lot of, at least from the, the student's perspective, nice, they use a lot of adjunct professors. So, it's, it's people who aren't doing this full-time. It's people who have their own thing, oftentimes full-time job, and then they're teaching a class related to what they're, they're doing in the, in the quote-unquote, real world. So, for me, that was really valuable knowing that I was learning actionable skills and that it wasn't too, too ivory tower. But essentially, once I, once I had taken all of the classes with this professor that he offered, uh, I had one class left. I asked him for what he thought I should take. And it was a, a class on pricing strategy taught by Tim Smith, who, like these other examples, was an adjunct professor. He had been doing independent consulting via his company, Wiglaf Pricing, for for about 10 years. I ended up really enjoying... The class for its subject matter too. Pricing is a really interesting mix of sales, marketing, finance, psychology, behavior. So it was nice for me coming from kind of a, a liberal arts background, not a super narrow functional business background, that it kind of combined a, a lot of those interests. So I finished up with that class, had had a great experience. I think we're a couple of weeks away from getting married, so not quite wife. And I uh, ended up moving back to DC, and when I started looking for jobs there. I uh, was looking for, for kind of three, three potential buckets. One being getting back into some kind of international work related to what I had been doing at CSIS, the, the think tank beforehand. I enjoyed that aspect and kind of missed that in the, the roles that I had in, in Chicago. Second bucket was consulting work. I knew that I liked that type of project-based role and the opportunity to learn about a lot of different industries and, and companies that comes with consulting the downside being that with a lot of consulting companies you're traveling all the time and already by that point in life that that wasn't uh, a priority for me the third was potentially joining a startup or starting my own company something that had always been interesting to me and at that point we had kind of enough stability where i felt like one of us could do that and um that uh, that summer a couple months after we had moved from from Chicago and i had really just started up the job search my former professor for pricing strategy reached out to to me and a, a bunch of other students looking looking to hire he had gotten a particularly large client um very active in latin america so he was looking for someone who was at least uh, proficient in spanish which which i was which i am so I, I responded. We talked. He had been looking for someone in Chicago, kind of call back to what we were talking about before, but we we figured out how to make it work long distance, how to make the telework work. And I've been doing that since. That was over four years ago for you know Feather in, in DePaul's cap right there. There's no more clear, positive result from a business degree than getting hired by someone who taught you. So not only did I know that I had been taught all the skills that I needed for the job, But it was a very satisfying, unequivocal fact that there was was no way I could have gotten that job without getting that degree too.
1: Right and this is like another interesting point of life is like you rarely ever know where like a job or an opportunity or you know relationship whatever is going to come from it always comes for me at least it always comes from some random place you didn't see coming you have a professor you're in a class like I'm sure never ever ever did you think oh maybe this guy will give me a job one day um but Absolutely. you just kind of you just kind of be your best authentic self every day and then you know if there's an opportunity there then like hey
0: right I, it was a class I almost didn't take at a school I almost didn't go to and um a little funny, funny anecdote, the the final in that class was optional. You didn't have to take the test. And you know, at that point I was almost done with my degree. I was like, oh man, why would I want to take one more test? And my wife, girlfriend at the time was, you know, just finish strong. You'll feel better about yourself if you take the test. Like you know the stuff, you'll do fine. You'll have to study a bit, but just finish strong. I was like, oh, you're probably right. I should I should do that. And um, did well on the test, finished up that way. And when I, you know, when I mentioned to to my boss, I think after after I'd started working, at least, uh, that I was like, you know, I I almost didn't take the final, and and he laughed and said, yeah, if you hadn't taken that final, there's no way I would have emailed you for this job. <laughs> so, oh wow, I love it. Not only did I almost not take the class, but you know, almost almost yeah. completely missed what. In many ways, has has been a dream job for me these past four years, just by by not taking something that was optional.
1: Yeah, uh, I love that. As you said, the serendipity of life, and I also loved how you described pricing as kind of like the mix of so many of these like you know interesting facets of life and psychology mm-hmm. and business and marketing. So yeah, it sounds like uh, like pretty interesting work.
0: It is, and it's been something where I could really grow into. Since there are so many different facets of of this role of of pricing, which you know oftentimes is just kind of relegated to a subset of marketing, there are different ways that I can kind of stretch and and different areas of the field that I can I can choose to spend more time in or less time into. Not coming from a super quantitative data science background, I'm not going to be the statistics whiz, despite you know, these these classes I took in undergrad, hoping to one day get a job in the field and have kind of ended up with that accidentally. It's been an area where I can leverage more of of this uh, mixed bag of experience, not in terms of quality, but in terms of of different different hats I've worn at at different times and focus more on the project management, the client interaction, which is huge, the persuasion and, and negotiation too. When you're coming in as as a consultant, you're you're an outsider. You need to build rapport, you need to build, you know, respect and authority, ASAP. And even when you have that, you, you, know, you, don't, you don't actually have any, contr- any direct control of what's going on in the business. You can have suggestions and, and have recommendations, but at the end of the day, if, if you can't help entice people to take them, then you haven't really made any effect and, and you don't have any command and control. You're not their manager. You can't say, well, even if you don't want to do this, you have to do it. You need to be able to make people want to make the change.
1: Yeah, no that's uh, exactly right. It's interesting hearing you uh, hearing you talk about that. So Kyle, when we uh, when we spoke on the phone before we before we did the podcast, we talked about, you know, how everyone kind of has their hands in multiple things today, like right? Like I work in fintech and I've got this side podcast. You work in pricing and you wrote a book. It's like that's so Interesting, right? Because you know, people never used to do those things. It's like I'm a doctor, and like that was it, or I'm a lawyer, right. and you know, right. that's pretty much it. But now it's like, okay, well, if your job isn't giving you 100 percent fulfillment, then go create something, go create a little side project, and get the five, 10, 2, whatever percent that's missing. You know, I'd love to hear about how the book ties into everything, how you started it, how it came to you, like all of that.
0: I think again, I'm I'm fortunate in that I found something that uh, kind of requires quote unquote thought leadership for for lack of a of a better term. My boss and CEO has written a handful of books in pricing and marketing. So he was all on board when I mentioned that writing a book is something that's that's always interested me and was starting to to look around for different topics that I could focus on. So being able to do it as part of my role, obviously taking you know taking some additional hours and not supplementing not supplanting rather time with clients, but the fact that it was actually related to to my day job was helpful in terms of the kind of the framework and the, the amount of time that I could could put into it too. But basically it, it started as kind of a rough idea. About two years ago, and talking again about serendipity and and the value of what can seem like kind of random experiences. Before I mentioned that I that I worked on on global trends analysis at CSIS at the at the think tank, and that kind of informed my thinking for this book too. I was I was trying to understand better different trends, different different revolutions in technology, and how businesses create strategy and um that kind of led me to having some of the initial ideas for for this book you take these initial ideas and then as kind of an aside uh, one nice thing about writing a book or or having a podcast i'm sure is people are so happy to talk to you if you're working on a on a project it's a uh, if not if nothing else this sounds a little mercenary but if nothing else it's a fantastic way to to get to talk to super interesting people so with kind of the kernels of ideas that I had for the for the book I, I talked to dozens of of people that I'd met through my consulting, reached out to dozens more, and started picking their brains and bouncing ideas off of them and finding out more of of what interested them and and what you know caused them to lose sleep at night too about changing technological landscape, changing business environment and that helped to kind of clarify my thinking around these these five revolutions that I landed on for the book. So the, the five I have for that are around what I call reintermediation. So middlemen, basically, how, how much of the value being created today is by uh, products and, and services and platforms that are connecting buyers and sellers in new ways rather than kind of creating what's more commonly thought of as, as a product or a service. So think about your Amazons, your Ubers, your Lyfts, these are companies that uh, position themselves much more as as market makers rather than uh, selling a discrete product. So that that's number one, reintermediation. Number two, monetization. So how technology and and the digital economy are enabling industries to take advantage of different monetization and pricing strategies. Some kind of uh, keywords that listeners may have heard of would be revenue management, dynamic pricing, individualized pricing, subscription pricing. So these different ways of of pricing that aren't necessarily new, but they're new to many industries that are using them. Subscriptions have obviously existed for forever, but applying those to boxes of food or to uh, to razor blades is, is relatively new and, and something that couldn't really exist before. The third one is transparency. Um, So specifically around around price transparency, I wasn't really happy with the quality of writing out there. So wanted to to try my own approach. The first was differentiating between price and pricing transparency. So I talk about price transparency being knowing the price that you're paying at the end. Pricing transparency being knowing how that price was arrived at. So it's kind of a a subtle difference. But once you think about it in two different ways, you start to see the difference. And in different areas. So f- for instance, if you're buying from Amazon, you see the price. That's they have price transparency. It's not a, you know, it's not a mystery when you click buy how much you're going to be charged at the end. That's true for Uber now too, right? You get quoted a, a specific price down to the cent for the trip that you're going to be taking. Beforehand, um, for Uber, they, they didn't have that transparency at the end. They had it at the beginning. They would say, oh, the multiplier is 1.1 or, uh, you know, surge pricing is, is, you know, maybe 5x what it normally is. So they were telling you how they would price, but you wouldn't actually know what the price was until the end. So I get into that more in the book, but largely I'm pushing back against the notion that more, more transparency is always better for the customer or that less is always better for the company. It's a lot more more subtle than that. Number four is around channel. So how companies are finding new ways to reach their customers, upending how industries operate. There are some great CPG examples. Uh, Tesla is another big one completely going around this traditional car dealership model that has just been the standard in the US for, for decades. And fifth is all around data can't really talk about disruption in, in the the future of business without talking about data as kind of the the new oil of the economy. So I talk about how some companies are using it well, how some are using it poorly, how different companies are choosing to or not to monetize it, which uh, there there are some pretty ex- interesting examples in there. So reintermediation, monetization, transparency, channel, data, those are the the five revolutions in the in the digital economy that I talk about. So like yeah. I said it's it's been a couple of years of work but released it earlier this summer been very pleased with the the feedback I've been getting in the field and from non-pricing non-business people uh hearing that it's it's actually quite accessible and you know a, a good read is always is always uh, satisfying to hear as well.
1: Yeah, that's that's awesome. And Kyle, I, as you go through each one of those five trends, I'm just thinking how it applies to you know to my startup PayClub, and mm-hmm. every single one of them is just like is basically our five. I mean, I, I don't know about the first one, but like I have four out of the five, I have really strong feelings with all those. So it, it's really interesting hearing you talk about that. And yeah, I mean, it sounds like a it sounds like a really compelling book.
0: Yeah, thank you. It's it's been a great project to have. I've done a few kind of business uh, or or I guess career adjacent creative projects. This this would be the most. Directly applicable, but we may have talked about before. I, I've uh, written some economics-themed music with a friend. One of the things that we did when we were both looking for jobs after the after graduating was was writing an entire album of folk songs about the the Great Recession. Um, so I was kind of drawing on some of those experiences too, and kind of what I guess the hustle, right? You, it, no one's making you do this project. There's not really a, a template for, for how to do it. So you need to be creative and, and you need to figure out a lot of it on your own. Now, I did have the benefit with this book to work through a program that helped to give a little bit of framework, a little bit of accountability for helping to develop ideas and having different waypoints along the way, which was certainly helpful and, and good for keeping me on track and, and making sure I actually got a book out rather than you know just thinking about these ideas for, right. for five years and not really going anywhere.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, today, every day, everything's about differentiation, right? And so like mm-hmm. you've got, you've got a book now. And yeah, so you, you put a cool product that. Adds value to people's lives out into the world, so I mean that's incredible. But also, as you're saying, you know, it's a tool to reach out to people. It's a tool that people see, and they say, "Oh, wow, Kyle! Like he must really know his shit. He just wrote a book." So it's like it just kind of reaffirms the entire package.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was that was kind of the goal. Part of leveling up as as my own consultant and as a thought leader in the field, um, it almost serves the same purpose as a as a degree, but I think much better because. Honestly, you have to put in a lot more work to develop a compelling book than you do to earn a degree in in lots of ways. So, yep. the program that I uh, did this through is called the Creator Institute, and the guy who runs it is is a adjunct professor at, at Georgetown. And this is kind of the argument that he makes is that books are really the new way of demonstrating knowledge and demonstrating expertise much more so than than a degree. I have both, which which feels nice, but in terms of like. No money down in, in flexibility. I, I think that the benefit of, of doing something creative and business related, whether it's a book, whether it's a podcast, an interview series, YouTube series, something like that. I think arguably that's that's more important than, you know, the pieces of paper that you get these days.
1: Yeah. Well, Kyle, I mean, you and I see eye to eye on that one. So you know, Tell us what it's called. Where people can find it? Is it on Amazon? Like, how does how do uh, people get their hands on this thing?
0: Sure. Yep. the The title of the book is "The New Invisible Hand." Subtitle: Five Revolutions in the Digital Economy. You can find it on Amazon. We've got a paperback version, uh, ebook version as well. So that's where to that's where to pick it up. It's been Love a it. uh, Amazon new release bestseller, which wow. which is you know very satisfying to see too. Uh, so it's great to see it resonating with with readers out there.
1: That's awesome. Well, I'm going to put it on my Kindle and, uh, and read it as I go on my five-year wedding anniversary trip to Mexico with my wife next week.
0: Oh, congratulations. It should be, yeah. A, you know, it's just some light beach reading.
1: I, I don't read anything light. Everything I read is just like what you're saying. And so this sounds right up my alley. I'm excited to, uh, I'm excited to, to get into it. Uh, great. Okay, well, Kyle, this was, you know, really fun hearing your story, your background, how you became uh, an author, how you how you went through that and your your job. Like this was just it was just a pleasure speaking with you.
0: Well, thanks very much, Alex. Uh, it is really fun to talk about it too. Like you said, we we had a great conversation beforehand and and it seems like we we really see eye to eye on a lot of this stuff, the, the importance of serendipity, of being open to new opportunities and uh, at the same time, be, where you can being strategic and, and being proactive in terms of of where you can create your own little projects, your own little initiatives, uh, whether it's in your job or outside of your job, and and uh, get to meet more people, get to experience new areas of business, and increase those those opportunities for for serendipity and success.
1: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I love 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 that line of thinking. So. Once again, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your uh, your message, your journey. Really inspirational.
0: Thanks, Alex. It's been fun.
1: Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends, helping us grow. Thanks.